Welcome back, uh, everybody, to Trad Men. Have a very special and uh, very important episode this week. Um, we're joined by our very first guest, Dr. Alex Bieliakowski, who we're going to introduce to you here in just a little bit. Um, very important topic today that we want to cover. Uh, but of course, as always, before we get started, we want to uh, invoke the divine blessing. And um, Jason, you found a very interesting prayer that um, that I thought would be very apropos. You thought would be very apropos. So, um, Jason, yeah. Take so it away. I found this uh, prayer, and it's a prayer to Our Lady, Holy Protection of the Theotokos. Um, so it goes like this: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. O Mary, Mother of God, as you are above all creatures in heaven and on earth, more glorious than the cherubim, more noble than any here below, Christ has given you to his people, firm bulk worth and protectress, to shield and save sinners who fly to you. Therefore, O Lady, all-embracing refuge, we solemnly recall your sweet protection and beg the Christ forever for his mercy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, Amen. and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There it goes. Amen. Um, we, we, uh, we are a traditional Latin Mass podcast, so to that end, I do want to read a very quick message that happened this week. It's old hat by now, but it was from Pope Francis. Uh, it's a decree, and I'll just read the English translation. Uh, the Holy Father Francis grants to each and every member of the Society of Apostolic Life Fraternity of St. Peter, Founded on July 18, 1988, and declared a pontifical rite by the Holy See, the faculty to celebrate the sacrifice of the Mass and to carry out the sacraments and other sacred rites, as well as to fulfill the divine office according to the typical editions of the liturgical books, namely the Missal, Ritual, and Pontifical, and the Roman Breviary, enforced in the year 1962. They may use this faculty in their own churches or oratories, otherwise it may only be used with the consent of the ordinary of the place, except for the celebration of private Masses. Without prejudice to what has been said above, the Holy Father urges that as far as possible, the provisions of the motu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, be taken into account as well. Given in Rome, near St. Peter's on February the 11th, the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes in the year 2022, the ninth of my pontificate, Francis. Holy Father, thank you. I think this goes a long way to thawing out some of the things that have been happening over the last couple of months, and uh, we, we are very grateful for your reaffirmation of the fraternity's mission. And uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully thawing out some of these tensions yeah. going forward. Oh, and we lost, we lost Jason. We're going to lose Jason a few times today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we're going to do it, but he will, he will be back. Um, but and he's coming back there? on. There he is. I don't. It does it every time. Last couple I know, times. We're going to have to punish your your internet provider for <laughs> yeah. a threatening letter or something. Well, I think there, there's another, like, uh, Wi-Fi here, and I think sometimes it switches to it, but I don't know what Wi-Fi this is. I guess it's the neighbors. But anyway, I need to go in there and mess with it. Um, but back back to your statement, I just wanted to make a quick comment on the, the statement from the fraternity. Is You know, there's this tendency to always try to find the negative in everything, and I, I think we should avoid that in this situation and just sit down and be thankful that uh, – that, you know that Pope Francis came out this way, and that the fraternity is able to continue as is. Here, here. Going forward, though, uh, recent events in the in the in global politics have taken place that we felt like it was very important to have um, a, a, t a show that addressed some of these issues. 
which leads us to introduce our guest, Dr. Alex Bielikowski. Um, he's a former U.S. Army Reserve officer who has published on such diverse topics as the final years of the U.S. Horse Cavalry in 1920s and 1930s, African Americans in World War II, and Dwight D. Eisenhower as the first commander of NATO. Uh, he spent more than a decade educating military officers at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And currently, he is the editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed journal U.S. Military History Review. And he's a trad man. He is a uh, <laughs> parishioner at Regina Chaley Catholic Church. And um, aside from knowing a lot about military history, he actually knows a lot about church history, too. And I could not think of a, a more important topic to have him on the show. Dr. Bielikowski, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Um, I'm going to read something to you, Dr. Bielikowski, and of course to, uh, to, to all our listeners too, and then we'll just jump right in. Um, this is now a month, this is a month old statement from the Metropolitan of Philadelphia of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Um, an appeal of the Ukrainian Catholic bishops of the United States, pray for peace and justice for Ukraine, be informed, support the suffering. Quote, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. In our Eastern Christian Christmas traditions, we rejoice and celebrate that God is with us, singing the praises of the Prince of Peace and hymns and carols. Yet as we reread the Nativity account, we encounter the homelessness of the Mother of God, the anguish of Joseph, and the, refuge, and the refugee status of the newborn Jesus. Herod appears a homicidal tyrant craving hegemony who massacres innocent children in Bethlehem in order to kill the Messiah, a vivid image of the lust for power. Herod's determination to dominate was so overpowering that he even murdered three of his own sons. The holy infant bringing salvation to all was a menace to a tyrant pathetically clinging to his self-importance. During the Christmas season, some 100,000 Russian troops have been pos positioned on three sides of Ukraine. A nascent democracy, a country on a pilgrimage to freedom and dignity from the fear of totalitarian past in which 15 million people were killed on Ukrainian territory. Today the world watches and wonders. Our religious liberty, a free press, a robust public debate, an accountable government, and a sovereign state to be punished through the escalation of an invasion that began in 2014. Is the Ukrainian people's exercise of their God-given dignity a threat to a modern Herod's thirst for power and hegemony? This is a question of life and death, as nostalgia for an empire lost has led to senseless slaughter and immense suffering throughout Ukraine. God-given human dignity and freedom threaten rulers who seek to dominate others, build empires, enslave, and colonize. Those with the audacity to resist, who dare to move from the fear of totalitarianism to freedom and dignity, are mercilessly punished. A voice heard in Ramah, sobbing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be consoled since they were no more. Matthew 2.18 after eight years of war initiated by Russia, Ukraine has lost a substantial part of its territory. 14,000 people, including children, have been killed. 1.5 million have been internally displaced. Several hundred thousand agonized near the front line, and millions suffer from post-traumatic stress. There are 400,000 traumatized Ukrainian veterans of the Russian war and thousands who have lost loved ones. How long will this continue? How many more shattered families, destitute widows and orphans, grieving parents and grandparents? How many more destroyed churches, mosques, synagogues, schools and hospitals, roads and bridges, homes and apartment buildings, factories and airports? How many more homeless, jobless, and impoverished millions forced to flee their country? How much more mindless, devastating pillaging by foreign-controlled organized crime? How many more devious, paralyzing international cyber attacks? How much more torment of freedom-loving citizens and torture of prisoners seized by terrorists? When will this stop? Um... 
it goes on to talk about ways in which you can support Ukraine. Um, and I'm going to post a link to that, obviously, in the description. Dr. Beliakowski, has this been coming for some time? Because I've sort of gotten a sense like last week we were talking about Canadian truckers and all of a sudden it, we're at the cusp of World War III. Can you give us a little bit of background on what what's the background of all of this, in, in a sense, at least from a maybe a political or even religious standpoint? Well, the background goes back uh, over a thousand years. The, uh, it, it, when Vla the, the Russians mark sort of the beginning of their state, or the, the Christianization of their state, to uh, Vladimir the Great, also called Vladimir the First, also called Saint Vladimir, and he's recognized as a saint both in the Catholic and in the Orthodox churches. Um, so in, I believe it was 988, uh, Vladimir converts to Christianity. Um, and what he had done is he had sent advisors out, he, they were pagans, and so they had sent advisors out to look at Islam, to look at Judaism, to look at Eastern Christianity, and to look at Western Christianity. And the advisors come back with kind of synopses of what they think of all of the religions, um, and ultimately he chooses Eastern Christianity because they had gone to Constantinople. Well, in 988, uh, you know... <laughs> Constantinople is still an imperial city, and in the West, they had only gone as far as Germany. And you can imagine, in 988, well, there's probably some, from our point of view, some very beautiful uh, cathedrals and so forth in Germany. Nothing is going to compare to Hagia Sophia in, in Constantinople. Sure. There's, there's, you know, you can't right. compete with that. Um, and so they choose Eastern Christianity, and then the Russian people begin to be baptized, and there's a, you know there's famous paintings of the uh, Kievian, uh, I'm sorry, Kievian. I'm in solidarity with the Ukrainians. I'm going to make sure I pronounce it correctly uh, uh, by the Ukrainian pronunciation. Kievian uh, Rus at that time they're not even called the Russians, the Rus, who are being baptized in the river. Um, you know this is all part of the kind of uh, creation mythos of, as it were, of the, the Russian nation, uh, which the Ukraine was the center of in those days. And so that, yeah, that's part of the problem is that the Ukraine was actually the center of Russian culture. Kiev was the first capital. Uh, and so that's why they're so um, upset about it being a separate country and it being an independent country. Now there's there's there, we obviously there's politics going on here right war is politics by other means as, as, uh, as someone famously said um, and there's diplomacy happening in the background don't don't get it twisted for a moment there is diplomacy happening right now in the background during all of this but I there's been a few articles and a few publications that have talked about there's a religious element to this conflict that is not being talked about, not being paid attention to, and it's not incidental. And I know people might think, well, it's the Trad Men podcast. Of course, they're going to find a religious angle to it. But don't get it twisted. The, the, there's some major religious institutions that are big players in what's happening here. Right. Dr. Bielikowski, can can you break down for us who the main players are from a religious institutional standpoint in what's going on. Right. So you've got a couple different things happening. You've got uh, first the, the, the whole breakaway of what we call the Ukrainian Catholic Church, uh, which happened in okay. 1598, uh, where a 
what had been up to that point called the Ruthenian Orthodox Church breaks away from Orthodoxy and becomes in union with Rome. Uh, why does that happen? Well, that again, that's, that's more of an ethnic split. So in 988, the, all the people there are the Rus, you know, whatever that generic, more generic term is. And as you can imagine, over the next 600 years, uh, m more differences develop. And so by, by the 16th century, when we're talking about, we have more of a distinct Russian group and a more of a distinct Ukrainian group. You know, the, yes, the languages are very similar, they both use Cyrillic, but there are differences. The culture, again, very similar, but they have distinctions. Uh, you know, and it's important to remember that, so I'm Polish, uh, the Polish language, the Russian language, the Ukrainian language, you know, all these languages have a common root in what we call Old Slavonic. And, and so, so all of these languages are similar. But again, that doesn't mean they're all the same. And, and so over centuries, you have this kind of movement of peoples, and you have people being more isolated from one another, and they develop different traditions, they develop different culture, slightly different language issues. Um, but the Ukrainians, by that point, really wanted to be separate from, they, they'd always wanted to be, well, not always. They had, since they had become a distinct ethnic group, they wanted their own place in the world. And that, that's understandable. Uh, that's true for every ethnic group. No matter how similar you are to another ethnic group, you'd like to do your own thing. So yeah, once, the, once the Ukrainian Catholic Church breaks away, then you've got the, everybody's, everybody who's left is Orthodox at that point. But then again, you have these seams where, well, I'm Orthodox, but I'm Ukrainian still. Just because I don't want to become a Catholic doesn't mean I stop wanting to be Ukrainian. And so you develop a Ukrainian Catholic, Ukrainian Catholic Church and a Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, and then, just to make things even more complicated, uh, there's a split within the Orthodox, within the Ukraine, between those who want to take direction from Moscow or those who say, no, Kiev is the center, and Kiev is where we should have our own patriarch, we should have our own everything. That ultimately does not get decided until, believe it or not, 2019, three years ago, is how recently that we have an, a completely independent Orthodox Church in the Ukraine. And that happens when the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople finally grants uh, permission for the Ukrainians to have their own distinct church. And so that's how recently... Which the, Muscovite, which the Muscovites must have loved. Right, and so, yeah, that's, that's again, <laughs> this is, that, like we say, that's, that's one of the underlying currents, is there, there is all this... Because for centuries, there was, uh, there was kind of a Ukrainian Orthodox Church that was loyal to Moscow, and there was a Ukrainian Orthodox Church that felt they were loyal to Kiev. Um, now, they didn't officially break away even before the current Orthodox Church was formed, which was a merger. So what happened is, in, 19, in 2019, the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople said, look, everybody who's Orthodox in the Ukraine, you're just going to all be one church. And he forms the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that is 
answers to Kiev. It is the it is the let me get get the official title of their uh, the Metropolitan of Kiev and all Ukraine. So that's the head of okay. the current Ukrainian Orthodox Church, or they actually call it the Orthodox Church of the Ukraine. Again, where you where <laughs> where you put the noun there is is uh, is somewhat distinct. Uh, prior to that, in 1992, the Ukrainians who wanted to be an independent Orthodox Church had broken away from Moscow, but they weren't officially recognized by almost all of the Orthodox world. So they were kind of, you know, freebooting it. They were doing their own deal. They were saying, we're an independent Orthodox Church, but almost nobody recognized them as such. And again, that was because of the Russian or... Soviet prior to that influence where they had been forced to conform whether they wanted to conform or not They were going to be they were going to do what they were told. So this tension Goes back like I say Centuries at least to the 1600s or 1500s and you could actually say even further back than that Doctor Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say dr. Bilikowski. I was gonna ask you um, so considering you know this the this shift. You know, in the in the Orthodox side, I, I don't know how religious of a man Vladimir Putin is, but you know, from my understanding and from what I've learned in the past, you know, particularly under the Soviets, the the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church was under heavy influence from the Soviets. So, what interest, uh, if any, uh, politically, does this w w where the uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox at least get their own seat in Kiev. How does that, uh, in, in the Russians' mind, particularly Vladimir Putin, do you think does does that switch away from Moscow to Kiev play in, if at all, play in this current situation? I think it absolutely does. Now, uh, about Putin himself, so I looked it up. Uh, Putin's mother actually was a devout Christian. Um, which is pretty amazing considering the time we're talking about, you know. Uh, his father was an atheist. Uh, he was baptized as an infant. So he was baptized in the, in the Orthodox Church as an infant. Uh, he, didn't, he doesn't seem to have ever really practiced. And once he became president, he's done with the Orthodox Church what czars of Russia did for a thousand years, which is use the Orthodox Church for his purposes. Whether he believed it or not, whether he had any real feelings on his own or not, didn't matter. Uh, and that's one of the problems of the, the Orthodox uh, Church as opposed to you know, the Catholic Church, uh, which is not to say Catholic bishops have never been influenced by political leaders. Uh, of course, that happened right. quite a bit throughout the centuries. Um, but the, how, how much time? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but the Orthodox Church, because it is ethnically centered, uh, is almost always seen as a separate instrument of the state <clears throat> of the state excuse me and so that's one of the problems is that um, and regardless of what eth uh, uh, orthodox group it is if it's if it's an orthodox group where the majority of the country is orthodox the church and the state they just go hand in hand and there's, there's very little separation between those two. And I'm not talking in the American sense of separation of church and state. I'm just talking in the sense that the church can operate on its own. The church can make decisions on its own. The church can do kind of what it wants. Um, and 
again, that's that's one of the tensions in orthodoxy is they're they're always the church and the state are always closely tied together, and so especially in in Russia, maybe more than any of the other orthodox churches, the the whoever the metropolitan or the patriarch or whoever the the senior figure was at any given time, for the most part, he's taking orders from the czar. And, you know, then, of course, the Orthodox Church is largely suppressed during communism, though they keep a rump around so that they can say to the West, no, 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 we have religious freedom. Look, here's, here's a church and here's, here's a few priests. And, you know, um, those, those guys, from what I understand, uh, are almost all, uh, I mean, they're agents of the state completely in that period. There are a few low-level priests who somehow snuck through and are just true believers, you know, believers in, in Christ. Uh, but most of them are, are one step away from being KGB agents, basically, during the communist era. And then when the Russian Orthodox Church gain, regains its independence, um, it's independent, certainly. And, you know, you don't have rank-and-file members and priests and bishops being members of the FSB, now the successor to the KGB, but the church and the state coordinate closely. Um, and so... Yeah, I was, I was going to say, like, I think in modern Russia, it was a very interesting place. There's this unique mixture of Soviet-style uh, security apparatus, where the, uh, the Soviet-style police state mixed in with this Russian Orthodox Church that seems to have a lot of clout in Moscow nowadays, right. which is something new for, for us. Anyway. Right, and it, what it is, is it's just a return to tradition. Basically, it's, and, and this is where Putin is really well liked by a lot of Russians, is that he reestablished the church, and he, he funneled lots of money into rebuilding the churches and cathedrals that the Soviets had destroyed, or in the cases where they had been used for another purpose, remodeling them and giving them back to the church. Um, so for for believers in the in the Russian Orthodox faith, he's kind of a hero because he really went out of his way. I mean, he could have just said, "Okay, the church is independent. Go fend for yourself." Uh, but he has actually plowed a lot of money. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars into rehabbing churches, reestablishing churches, rebuilding churches. And for Russian believers, that makes him, you know, their guy. They, they are, they're proud of that. They're happy with that. And why should they be, in a certain sense? And I, I think there was an event that happened very recently also where he reinterred the remains of Tsar Nicholas II and his family in the cathedral in Moscow. Yep. Which, you know, if those of us watching in the West were like, okay, so what? But you have to understand something like that from the mind of a Russian. Like, that's a huge, uh, you know, that to, that's the, that is to them what the state of, the establishment of the state of Israel is for Jewish people. That's like, it's like a huge, huge thing for that to happen. Um, and, and, and by the way, everything we've been talking about, is the reason why you don't want to run off to the Orthodox Church because there's trouble in the Catholic Church. If, I, I, I've been laughing at all these people recently who are like, I'm going to go Orthodox because I'm tired of all this schism. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> that's like that's like joining the army because you don't want to be told what to do. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, they, they've got schisms. all the, They're a hot mess just like we are. Yeah, I don't want to listen to my mom and dad, so I'm going to join the army. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, now, 
we've talked a lot about the Ukrainian Catholic Church. We talked a lot about the, the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church. I would argue, and Dr. Bielikowski, you can tell me if I'm way off base here, that there's a fourth player here, and that's Rome. Don't get it twisted. Uh, I was complaining to my wife yesterday. I was like, where is the Pope? Why isn't the Pope doing anything? Why? And she's like, Mark, if you think that the Pope is not involved in the background here, you're out of your mind. Because these people may not like the Vatican. They may be in schism with the Vatican. But don't get it twisted. They care what the Pope thinks. Right or wrong? Right. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. And it, 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 it kind of doesn't matter who the Pope is. Though, obviously, in, in recent memory, you know, in our lifetimes, uh, popes have been much more involved in trying to be peacemakers, uh, you know, starting with uh, John Paul II, who, you know, was the most traveled pope in, in history. Um, there is this effort yeah. for always for the pope to kind of act as a as a neutral kind of party, if, if, if they can act like a neutral party. In some cases, obviously, they're very partisan for one side or another if there's persecution. Um, but yes, I, I even though I haven't seen any official statement other than the kind of we pray for peace that's all i've seen from the vatican uh is the kind of you know generic we're praying for peace in in eastern europe um see to me that's like the dead giveaway mm -hmm. that and and by the way not just the vatican uh our local cardinal has not issued any statements on on anything and it's almost like everybody's just being told hey keep keep quiet we're working on something because this is one of these situations that this could spiral out of control, and if it does, it gets real bad real quick. So um, I'm, I'm almost kind of seeing like a united thing amongst the Roman bishops that, hey, let's the Holy Father's involved in this somehow. Let's keep it cool. Let's keep a tamper on things. I mean, we can't know, certainly, sure. uh, what's going on in the background because there is diplomacy. But, um, yeah, if you think that – and say what you want about Pope Francis – he is a master politician, if nothing else. Right. So uh, this this is his table. He knows how to he knows how to at least do this. He may not be much of a theologian, but uh, he definitely knows about politics. Well, and and I'll add, uh, I agree with that statement because, you know, as uh, Dr. Bilikowski led, you know, when, we're, when he gave a talk a couple weeks ago, you know, he mentions the the Ukrainian Catholic Church is the second largest group of Catholics outside of the the Latin Rite, and, you know, throughout history, at least in the past two, three hundred years, you know, anywhere the Russians have gone, territorial-wise, it seems like the Ukrainian Catholics have been persecuted almost to the point of extinction. So, you know, the Pope and the Vatican are definitely aware of this, and I would be very surprised if they weren't trying to make moves behind closed doors on this. Right, and, and you know, again, before, before the, the end of the Cold War, there were more Officially, there were more Ukrainian Catholics in the United States than there were in the Ukraine. Now, obviously, that was for hmm. political reasons. You couldn't come out and say, you know, I'm a believer unless you wanted hmm. to get whacked. But, you know, that that's a big factor, too. And that, that leads me into the, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, because, Dr. Bielikowski, I know you're not just an expert on the sort of overall uh, bigger picture, but you've, you've got some very... You know, moving individual stories of, of Ukrainian Catholics. I think one of the most moving things that I've seen in the last couple of days is the heroism of these Ukrainian patriots. I mean, 
These guys are stone cold soldiers, and uh, it's been incredibly moving to to see the the mayor of Kiev manning a machine gun in in tactical BDUs, you know, uh, ready to get down for his people if need, if that need be. Um, yeah, cl- clutch go. Most moving clutch go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of them, and there's just some very moving stories of saints in the history of the Ukrainian Church um, that I think are not just models for Ukrainian people; they're models for for Catholics all over the world. Um, can you speak to some of? And I know you shared a few of those stories, uh, but uh, would you mind just sharing a few of the stories of some individual Ukrainian saints that? Um, that you think might be edificacious for our uh, our listeners. Uh, well, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember any saints, but I mean, certainly the the story of the Ukrainian Catholic Church is a story of suffering. I mean, they they may not be officially recognized saints, but the number of of Ukrainian saints who are saints known only to our Lord and in heaven uh, is is um, it's got to be thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Um, but I mean, as recently as, you know, the 20th century, you have the, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church's metropolitan, uh, Joseph uh, Slippy, Sleepy, uh, and I, 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 I apologize to my Ukrainian friends out there, I do not know how to, I can barely pronounce yeah, Polish, gonna, so it's... <laughs> we're going to butcher your language, it's not on purpose. Yes, so uh, metropolitan Joseph, S-L-I... P Y E. So I, I apologize for however that's pro- uh, supposed to be pronounced. Um, you know who he, along with nine bishops and around eight hundred uh, clergy, are all imprisoned uh, during uh, the post World War II era by the Soviet government. Uh, they are tortured uh, to try and get them to conform to what the Soviet government wants. Um, and then they are, are either sent to the gulag, uh, sent to prisons like uh, the notorious Lubyanka prison in Moscow. Uh, some of them are sent on internal exile, which means they're just sent out into the middle of nowhere in, in Siberia. Um, and a good chunk of them die during their imprisonment. So, you know, they, they like, like Orthodox, you know, like uh, Ukrainian Catholic believers always... Uh, under under the Soviets, but even in the old days, when when you know being a Ukrainian Catholic was still a problem, as opposed to being Ukrainian Orthodox was a problem, these men are martyrs, you know. And again, whether they've been officially recognized by the Church or not, um, that we know they're martyrs. We know that they are, uh, you know, among the exalted in heaven. There's no doubt about it. Um, and you know, the Metropolitan is a good example because after. 18 years of imprisonment and persecution and torture, uh, he's finally freed. He's able to get to Rome, and he finds out that he had, for most of that, uh, about what, about 15 of that 19 years, 18, 19 years, he had been actually a cardinal. That uh, the Pope, Pope Pius XII, had named him a cardinal uh, in peccatore, you know, in in secret. Um, and uh, and he just didn't know it. And so when he finally gets to Rome, he's he's informed. Oh, by the way, you've been a cardinal for the last fifteen years. Um, and so that that must have been an amazing experience for him to know that during that whole time he was being persecuted, he was not forgotten. Rome had not forgotten about him. The rest of the world had not forgotten about him. Uh, but again, yes, the 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 number of of saints and martyrs. 
from the Ukrainian Catholic Church is, is the numbers have got to be astounding. And when, when we find out, you know, in our next life, uh, I'm sure we're going to be just amazed, just absolutely amazed at, at how many suffered for the faith, unknown, you know, unknown suffering. And I think that's such a, that's such a great, that's such a great thing to be reminded of because I think when we, a lot of times we can look at our bishops, especially those of us in the West sometimes, and not without good reason, we're, we're, we're scandalized. We, we, we think of them as weak or as, you know, they're, they're not really on our side and they're, they're most of the problem and everything. Don't get it twisted. There are some bishops and cardinals out there who are servants of God and they, uh, they have suffered greatly for the cause of Jesus Christ and his church. Um, so, you know, like I'm, I'm always a big fan of saying, don't focus on what Satan's doing. He's going to do what he's going to do. But look at the heroes, man. I mean, there's some heroes out there who are bishops, especially in the East. They've had to undergo some horrible sufferings in the last hundred years, uh, especially. And even, like you said, even longer than that. Yeah, I'm always I'm always pretty amazed in our Eastern, uh, Eastern, Eastern uh, you know, uh, Catholics and all that. Because, you know, you, you look at the Ukrainians, you look at the Hungarians, you know, so on and so forth. And it's just amazing the battles, the bloodshed, and the martyrdom that many of this, the common everyday people have undergone, especially when you compare it to the West or different parts of the world. These, you know, these guys are are fighters. It's in them. So, you know, to, going to y'all's point, we know there are just untold numbers of martyrs that we'll never know this side of heaven. Here, here, here. Dr. Belikowski, what is Vlad Putin's end game here, if you had to guess? Well, you know, when this whole thing started, I assumed it was merely to take those two quote-unquote independent republics, you know, and the eastern part of the Ukraine, um, gobble those up, uh, and and I was actually saying, you know, in, as much as that's going to be unpleasant for the Ukraine, maybe it actually will be good because they'll get rid of all the Russian separatists, and Ukraine would be left alone, but they'd have fewer Russian separatists, and it'd actually be good for them. Well, uh what Putin actually did was not something I thought he would do. I mean, I did not expect him to yeah, invade uh, Ukraine proper. Uh, I, I went, you know, I'm out of the loop now. I'm not, I don't work for the army anymore. So I went and I started emailing my friends who are still in the army, still working for the army. Um, and uh, the majority of them were just, no, we never expected that. We never expected him to full-on invade Ukraine. Um, because, you know, the hope was that the fear of sanctions, the fear of, of retaliation, something like that would stop him. Um, and it's, it hasn't. It, it, it's, I'm shocked, quite frankly. I never expected that he would just say, eh, whatever, and just keep going. Um, so obviously his end game appears to be to either reabsorb the Ukraine back into Russia completely, or at the very least to establish a puppet government in the Ukraine. Now, personally, I think he'd be foolish to just establish a puppet government and leave, because the Ukrainian people showed earlier in the in this in our century here in the 21st century that they were not going to stand for Russian puppets running their government. Um, so, right. so I I would be suspicious of him doing that because he knows history too. He lived through it. You know what I'm saying? So. That leaves us with him just integrating the Ukraine back into Russia. 
and by force. And if you remember, uh, so if we could diverge off into politics here a little, uh, and away from religion for a moment. Please. By all, by all means. The Ukrainians, again, because the Ukrainians wanted to be their own people. They wanted to be separate. When World War II happens, so let, let me bring up something that has been, Putin's mentioned in, uh, in the press several times. He's going to denazify the Ukraine. So everyone's probably heard this statement at one point or another. And for the average person, they must be going, Nazis? That's Germany. What's he talking about? Well, well, it seems to be an, an average insult you throw around to anybody. It, it does. Ironically, it's actually sort of appropriate. I don't think it's truly appropriate, but there's actually a rationale behind it. In oh. World War II, when Germany invades the Soviet Union, when they get to the Ukraine, they find the Ukrainians actually rather receptive to the idea of fighting against the Russians because the Ukrainians wanted independence. Uh, and so the Ukrainians will ultimately provide more soldiers to Germany than any other occupied nation uh, in World War II. Uh, that is not because they were Nazis. That is because they hated the communists and the Russians so much that they thought if they served the Germans, when this was all over, they'd get their independence. Now, perhaps that's naive, but welcome to human nature. That people always grasp at straws. This guy's been abusing me for 500 years. This guy just showed up. I'll take my chances with this guy, right? So what happens is this has become a whole thing in Russian-Ukrainian relations since World War II. So you have this, the, the Ukrainians are Nazis because they served alongside the Germans during World War II, large numbers. There was over a core that was recruited from the UK. There was an entire cavalry corps, and there was even more still. I don't have an exact number, and uh, you know, right off, uh, uh, right easily available. But so this is the problem: is you, you, when when Putin says uh, that he's going to denazify Ukraine, what he's talking about is going back to this, they helped the Germans in World War II, they're Nazis. And so any, anybody from Moscow's point of view, any Ukrainian who was for independence, after 1945, they're a Nazi. That's how they've been characterizing them. You're just a collaborationist with the Germans, you're just a Nazi. And so that's where this comes from. This is not just a kind of generic insult like it has been with you know other political uh, groups. This is there's actually a historical basis for it, um, and so the problem is once the war was over, the Ukrainians still didn't give up. In fact, there were there was ins an insurgency in the Ukraine as late as 1954, nine years after World War II. The Ukrainians were still resisting. So it's 1954 is when we we kind of say. Uh, that's it. You know, the, the Ukraine has been pacified, according to Moscow at least. The Ukraine has been pacified. So, so again, this is part of the politics and the history that's going on here. Is Are the Ukrainians collaborationists with the Germans? Yeah, they did. Because, again, they'd been abused by Russia for at least 500 years. And 
then by the communists for, what was it, 30, 40 years at that point. Um, then there's the Holodor, and I don't know, it, you know... I was, yeah. I was just about to ask you, tell, let's talk about the Holodor. Uh, and so that's <laughs> another one of the issues. So, of course, in the, <clears throat> in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, uh, the Soviet Union ha has, uh, has control of U the Ukraine. Um, and Stalin doesn't like the Ukrainians. Stalin is ethnically Georgian. He's not even ethnically Russian. But he uses the Russians, who are the dominant ethnic group of the Soviet Union, to establish power. And this is very common. So, you know, at, later on in Yugoslavia, you know, post-World War II, you've got Joseph Tito, a communist, running the country. He's Croatian, but he uses the Serbs, who are the largest ethnic group, to run the country. So this is a very common thing to do. So Stalin wants to go ahead and uh, crush Ukrainian independence, crush Ukrainian power, and so forth and so on. Um, and this is all part of his general campaign of terror throughout the entire Soviet Union. So even though certainly the Ukrainians suffer in some ways more than anybody else during this period, everybody's suffering in the Soviet Union. So no, nobody's getting on. And in fact, even the Georgians, that's the thing. Stalin doesn't even care about his own people. He, he, he's, they suffer as well. But the Ukrainians suffer, you could argue, percentage-wise, they certainly suffer more than anybody else in the Soviet Union. Um, basically, this is all part of collectivization. So we want to get rid of independent farmers. We're going to make this glorious, you know, people's uh, socialist paradise of the Ukraine. So we're going to collectivize all the farms. And there's these giant farms, and all the laborers work on one farm. They don't get their own independent farms. Um, and so that creates problem right away, because there's that whole human nature you got to get past. And that's one of the problems with communism, of course, is human nature fights against it constantly. Sure. Um, sure. But once you, you establish this and things are starting to go the way he wants, he starts exporting grain from the Ukraine to other parts of the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, um, more grain than he needs in a, in a deliberate effort to starve the Ukrainian people, to basically crush their ability to resist. And the number of people that die, again, there's, there's no definitive numbers, um, but I've seen numbers in the range of about three and a half million people are, are starved to death, systematically starved to death. Um, in the in the 20s and 30s by uh, by Moscow, and so this this feeds into why the Ukrainians wanted to be independent so bad. And as soon as the Soviet Union fell in the 90s, they wanted their own country um, because there's so much kind of ugly history in the background. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I'm not probably going in a smooth line here. I'm kind of bouncing all over. No, no. I no, no you're, 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 dude, you're, you're tracking perfectly. And this is exactly the kind of thing that, that I wanted to cover. Cause I don't, I don't hear anybody talking about the home door and I don't hear, and granted there is an, also an ugly history as you talked about of Ukraine's involvement in the Holocaust. Yes. Um, it goes, it, it goes to speak again to something we've talked about on this podcast numerous times. If you're looking for the group of people that are exempt from evil, and sin and and have conquered the human heart's capacity for evil those people don't exist we're all in the same boat right and to believe that you're just one of the people that are just not capable of things like that 
uh, no, probably not. Uh, so pray for sanctifying grace, because that's the only thing that cures the human heart's capacity for evil. Um, there's if, uh, if I if please. no no go ahead, Mark. If it's because I'm going to kind of switch gears, so if yours is on this topic, no no go no, ahead. please please please. <clears throat> well, I just wanted to ask Dr. Bilikowski about, you know, I, I know I've read and, and heard you know people speak about NATO's influence on this decision. You know, that I guess that, that Putin viewed, you you know, if Ukraine became part of NATO, I guess it would be, for lack of better terms, an act of aggression against him and his country. Can you speak more to that and how NATO has played a, a factor in in Putin's decision making? Well, so from what we, we, what we understand, okay, um, the, the Soviets and now the Russians have always viewed NATO as an offensive rather than a defensive system. And it, this is an example, historically, of two groups of people who are literally talking right past one another. They, they, can't, they can't understand what the other side sees. They can't understand the other side's perspective. And so, you know, NATO is formed, believe it or not, before the Warsaw Pact. But it's formed as a way to be a bulwark against Soviet aggression. Um, and the the Russians saw it as an act of aggression uh, when NATO was formed first, you know, in 1949 and 1950 when it's, when it's organized. Um, our perspective, of course, was, well, you already control all of Eastern Europe, so all those governments are already going to do whatever you want. So if you decide you're invading West Germany, they're all going to say, sure, and they're going to come with. Uh, but the, the, from the Soviet point of view, the fact that NATO was formed first makes it aggressive. If they had formed the Warsaw Pact first, and then NATO had formed, they could, you could, from a Russian point of view, Soviet point of view, then you could say it was defensive. But you did it first, so that's offensive. Okay, if you, if that makes sense. And yes, it does. And so, um, so Cold War ends, Warsaw Pact falls apart. We start to add former Warsaw Pact nations to NATO. Again, every time we add one of them that to Russia is an act of aggression because they're moving closer to the borders of Russia. So Poland gets admitted, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia get admitted, you know, the other nations of Eastern Europe start getting admitted. Those are all acts of aggression from the point of view of the Russians. Um, again, our perspective is that, well, this is defensive. The, the pact only works if you're attacked. I mean, if Poland decides to invade Belarus, that does not, you know, activate the Warsaw Pact alliance. That's an aggressive act by Poland against another country. So I'm picking on my own guys right now, Poles. So if Pol Poland invades Belarus, NATO is under no obligation to help Poland because that's an aggressive act. Now, Belarus invades Poland, <clears throat> yes, and that, that's fundamentally... Uh, one of the problems is they see this as an aggressive act. We in the West see it as defensive. And again, it's, it's a question of not seeing things from your enemy's perspective. And this, is, and this is, has nothing to do with the Soviet Union. This is ingrained in the Russian psyche. So if you go back far enough, remember that the Russians were conquered by, by the, the Mongols. You know, they, the, 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 you know, 
the Khans were coming through, and they controlled huge swaths of what is today Russia. And so Russia has this persecution complex. And then the Napoleon. Then the Napoleonic Wars. Also. Then the Napoleonic Wars, then the Germans in World War II. And so, you know, Russia has a history of being invaded. And unfortunately, we kind of knee-jerk to the modern and say, well, Russia's always the aggressor. Well, no, actually more of Russia's history was them being invaded than them doing the invading. Uh, and, and their perspective is they have to be strong. They have to be willing to fight. They have to be willing and able to defend themselves against aggression from the outside. Now, I'm not taking their side on this, but I'm just saying from a historical sure. perspective, you've got to understand where they're coming from, too. And their perspective is they're always being attacked. That's that's the Russian perspective. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because I know in your military history uh, expertise, you're, you're big on World War II. That's sort of your main area of focus in military history. Um, I think what a lot of people in the West, at least, don't understand about World War II, because our vision of World War II is the Western front of the European theater and the Pacific theater. And that's pretty much most of what we learned from war about World War II. How big of a place in the Russian psyche to this day does Operation Barbarossa still hold? Is that something that they're... Because that was... I, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was the largest land invasion in all of human history. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. And, and it had devastating, devastating consequences for the rest. Yes, it, it was. And it, and again, you know, we, now I'm, I'm kind of a unique case because I had, a, I had two grandfathers fighting in the Polish army in World War II. So I, I kind of have a bit more of a feel for that stuff. But yeah, the average American, it's, it's all about D-Day and, you know, uh, Operation Market Garden and all that stuff, which is, is great and heroic, and those men, those Americans were incredibly brave. But compared to what's happening on the Eastern Front, it, it's a drop in the bucket. It, it, it's truly a drop in the bucket. Um, when the uh, Soviet Union is invaded by uh, Germany, uh, basically the Soviets are not prepared. Uh, Stalin had just gone through a round of purges in 1937 and 38. So most of the senior leaders of the Red Army had been killed. And I can actually give you, I pulled up while we were talking here, I pulled up uh, something. So uh, the, okay, so uh, the 1937-38 purges. There were five marshals of the Soviet Union before that. Three of the five are purged. Twelve of the 15 Army commanders are purged. 57 of the 85 Corps commanders are purged, 110 of the 195 Division commanders are purged, and 220 of the 407 Brigade commanders are purged. So the Red Army has been so badly purged that they're, they don't know what to do with themselves. And then the then Germany, and when you say and when you say purged, you mean they're given a DACA somewhere out in the black no, sea? No, no, I mean they're given a small caliber bullet in the back of the head. Gotcha. They are for sure. They are purged. for they're permanently. Purged. Yeah, there are a few that sneak out. Uh, Rakasovsky, uh, later later Marshal Rakasovsky, manages to be purged but not shot. Uh, uh, he has, however, all of his teeth knocked out with a ball peen hammer. Uh, and so he uh, he later on has stainless steel dentures, 
Uh, and he actually was the inspiration for the character Jaws in the two James Bond movies, if you remember from the 70s. I was about, that's that's exactly what I thought of when you said yeah, that. Yeah, somebody, somebody had read about that, and that, uh, even though, obviously, you couldn't bite through steel cable with uh, with uh, Rakosovsky's dentures, that was the inspiration, believe it or not, for that, that character, the character of Jaws. Uh, but so their pur- the purge is so bad that the Red Army is just, it's incompetent. And in the early uh, phases of uh, the 1941 phase of the attack, um, the number of Soviet, I mean, just prisoners, okay, 3.9 million Red Army soldiers are captured just between June and December 1941. 3.9 million are captured by the Germans, okay? They're captured by the Germans, um, and... By February 1942, 2.8 million of them are already dead. The Germans. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that to be captured by the Germans as a Russian, uh, you I, actually you'd probably just rather die in the fight because due to Nazi racial policy, yep. Slavs and Jews essentially were the same today. Right. Correct. Right. Um, and so. by the end of the war, of that 3.9 million who were initially captured, only 100,000 survive. So this is incredibly devastating, uh, and the, the, the Russians come back, they start to get their stuff together, they start to get better at being soldiers, um, but yeah, I mean, they, they suffer greatly. Um, at the total cost to the Soviet Union is upwards of 20 million people in World War II. Upwards of 20 million people. 20 million is a very so conservative estimate. That's half of all European casualties in the war, pretty much. Yes. Just in Barbarossa. Yes. Uh, and if you average it out, uh, a, a, a historian named Ned Wilmot uh, said, basically, if you average out Soviet deaths over the course of the entire point time they're at war, so from June 1941 to May 1945, the Soviets are losing 15,000 people a day. Now, that's on average. And that's not even, that's not counting the, the is that counting the civilian Jewish population? and the Yes, like it's, ca- it's, counting, it's counting anybody who was a Soviet citizen in 1941. I see. Uh, on average, they're losing 15,000 people every single day over that four-year period of time. Now, obviously, it doesn't work out conveniently like that, but that's what it averages out to be. Um, and so that's, you know, that's important. I mean, that's the, the Russian mindset is they suffered, you know, and you can't take that away from them. And even though, you know, I had a, I had a grandfather that died at Katyn uh, that was murdered by the Soviets. Uh, my other grandfather was lucky. He was only a corporal when he was captured. Uh, and so he wound up spending two years in the Gulag before he was freed. Um, but, you know, even though I have my own personal issues, there's no debating that the Russians suffered. The Russians suffered probably more than anybody else in World War II. Um, you know, when you look at the, the death totals, uh, the nobody loses more people than the Soviet Union does. Uh, now, as a percentage of their population, believe it or not, they're, they're third after Poland and Lithuania, of all places, uh, the Poles and the Lithuanians suffer more as a percentage of their population. But for total deaths, right. 
nobody suffers worse than the Soviet Union, uh, and arguably they're even third in percentages. So you know uh, they suffered greatly, and 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 certainly they they that plays into their mindset. You know that plays into their mindset in the back of their mind. All of this stuff we're talking about right now, the Ukrainians are bad guys because they're Nazis, because they supported the Nazis, which is, you know, a really unfair characterization here. What are we, 1945 is when World War II ended. Um, you know, it's an unfair characterization, but that's their perspective. It doesn't make it valid. It doesn't make it right, but it is a valid perspective from their point of view. Um, and the West is aggressive. Again, their perspective is NATO was formed first, so it's clearly aggressive. It's not defensive. And they don't understand that what it took to form NATO was to convince all these countries it was in their best interest not to get overrun. <laughs> I mean, when Eisenhower's going around drumming up support for NATO, that's what he's trying to do. He's like trying to convince France and Belgium and you know all these other countries that, hey, it's in your interest to be united so you don't get overrun by the Soviets. Whereas... Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, all these countries, were just going to do whatever the Soviets said. You didn't need a Warsaw Pact. They could have never had a Warsaw Pact, and it wouldn't have made any difference, because they had to do what they were told anyway. You know, it always it, it always amazes me when, when you hear uh, or talk to people like Dr. Bilikowski how complex these, these situations are, you know, both from, both from a political and religious standpoint, because, you know, it seems like here in the past few years, the most that people know here in the West, particularly in the U.S., know about Russia is that Trump was Putin's puppet for the past four years, right? <laughs> they, they don't look at it from, you know, from all these complexities. And while, while uh, like Dr. Bilikowski said earlier, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily support the Russians. You know, same, same with myself in their, in their aggression right now on Ukraine. You, you, you don't want to talk past each right. other. And, and have a better understanding of where, where they come from. So, so to the countries like Poland and, and the other Eastern uh, European countries that have joined NATO, was Ukraine kind of a, a, a last straw in that, or is it particular because of who the Ukrainians are, you think, that, that, that added fuel to this fight? I think it's a little bit of both for the Russians. Uh, they, those other countries had largely never been part of Russia itself, although Poland was for a little while after 1798, from 1798 to 1917. But there was a recognition still that the Poles were a different ethnic group, they're a different religious group, etc. That there was a grudging kind of, oh, I guess they can go their own way. Uh, but the U And the Poles are mostly Roman Catholics, yes, which yes. automatically yeah. sort of separates them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in many they're, ways, they're, the... Right, right. the the Poles are one of the few Slavic groups that is Latin Rite Catholic, that has the Latin alphabet, and that they look to the West for their traditions and for everything. Um, and so that's one of the fundamental differences. Unlike the a lot of the other Slavic groups, like the say the Serbs or so forth, where they're they're Orthodox, they use the Cyrillic alphabet. And they look toward the east. They look to Moscow as kind of the big brother. I mean, you go back to World War One. Why does World War One happen? You know, with the assassination of uh, the Archduke uh, Ferdinand in, in Sarajevo, and it's the Serbs who are behind it, at least in theory, and you know all this. And then the Russians get involved to pick, you know, to defend their brothers, the Serbs, who are also Orthodox, and 
you know, you got all that kind of thing. So, yeah, Poland, Poland is one of the few um, Slavic countries that is kind of distinct. Uh, and that's part of the reason that Poland winds up getting squashed so much is because she really has no friends. Because the West doesn't accept her because she's Slavic and whatever that is. And the East doesn't accept her because she's not Orthodox. And she, you know, doesn't have all the same traditions, uh, just some of the same traditions. Um, but yeah, I think the, the issue, to go back to Jason's question, I think the issue is really that the Ukraine was considered historically part of Russia. The fact that it was a different ethnic group um, is kind of minimal to the Russians. From the Russian point of view, eh, you're almost the same. It's, you know, you're Orthodox. Well, no, a good chunk of them are, are actually Ukrainian Catholic. Well, those, are, those aren't real Ukrainians. The real Ukrainians are Orthodox, you know. So from Moscow's point of view, this is, those other countries, Hungary, Poland, okay, they were never really Russian. They were never really part of Russia. But the Ukraine has, from 988, from the Christianization of Russia onward, Ukraine had always been part of Russia. So when you think about it, when they gained their independence in the 1990s, that's a thousand years of history where they had been part of Russia, willingly or unwillingly. They'd been part of Russia. And so, again, that goes to the, the Russian perspective. They'd always been part of Russia. And that's why I think, you know, Putin is, I think Putin is probably headed in the direction of he's going to make them part of Russia again. Uh, like I say, I can't see him just simply saying, okay, we're picking a stooge to run the country and then we're leaving because that'll fall apart in no time flat. Uh, the Ukrainians are showing how the level of resistance. As you mentioned, the, the mayor of, uh, the mayor of, of Kiev is, is, you know, arming himself and the four, uh, the, probably everyone's seen the video of the former president of the Ukraine who was in the streets with an, with an AK. I mean, the, the, the Ukrainians are not gonna they're not gonna go easy uh, they remember what it was like to be under Russia they remember the Holodor uh, they remember the Soviet Union and they're not going to sell their freedom cheaply and uh, and good on them uh, I it's sad though I mean the number of people who are gonna die uh, you know we're not we don't know we don't know what the numbers are right now supposedly over 2,000 Russian soldiers have already been killed and you know if over 2,000 Russians have been killed, the casualties are way worse on the Ukrainian side. Um, it, it's sad. And, well, we just, yeah. We, we, it's important. You know, you were talking about seeing the other side's point of view. That's important because, obviously, we want a diplomatic solution to right. this. And, and sooner rather than later. Uh, we're, we're always praying for peace. I have this weird idea, and, you know, we, we've just got a few minutes left, but I just want to get your take on this. There is an element traditionally in Russian statecraft of brinksmanship. Brinksmanship to the Russians is a tool of diplomacy in and of itself. Uh, I read a very interesting book about the Cuban Missile Crisis and why in the world in 1963 of all times would you put nuclear weapons in Cuba at the United States' back door, which is something that all but ensures a nuclear exchange taking place. Not to the Russians. I think to the, there, is a, there is a technique in Russian statecraft of, do I have your attention now? You know, and they will go to extreme things to, do, to accomplish that. Um, so my hope is that what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is that 
which because that would mean that he's not trying to start World War III. Right. We can only we can only guess. Do you think there's something to that, Alex? Am I? Am no, I, I don't think you're that? off offline at all. Uh, the Russians, <clears throat> like a lot of uh, states, believe that you negotiate from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. So the time to negotiate is when you've already, like you say, you've got your attention. Have I got your attention now? All right, now we're going to negotiate because I'm in a strong position. So now you're going to give me what I want or it's going to get worse. Uh, the Chinese very much agree with that kind of thing. The Chinese are not going to give you legitimate negotiations uh, unless they are either weak or strong. But if they're, not in, if they're in the middle, they're not going to do that. And the same thing with the Russians. Uh, you negotiate from strength or you negotiate because you have to negotiate because you have no choice. And, and that's absolutely true. And, and I think that's true of, though, it's, though it is, a, I suppose, a character of the Russians, I think it's also true of states that tend toward totalitarianism. I think that's also a, a character uh, of those kind of states. So if you're in a state where uh, your perspective is that you you are always strong, you're never weak, weakness is, is bad, negotiation is weak. Why not just take what I want? Why not just do what I want? And, and then if, if part of the way through doing what I want, you may give me something for free, I'll take it. Why not? <laughs> right. So, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. Sure. They're going to negotiate from a position of strength. And whether, again, whether we're talking about China, whether we're talking about Russia, that, that's their perspective. And they're in a position of strength right now. They could see, theoretically, like you said, there could be negotiations going on that we don't know about. They could be negotiating right now from the position of strength and ready to go ahead and say, okay, we'll leave now, but here's what we want. And who knows? Right. And I think, and, and this is something I wanted to bring up also before we, we head out, we're, we're not just standing in solidarity with our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ. We're also remembering our Russian brothers and sisters who are very much opposed to this action. Um, and there, there are, I think, over 1,800 Russian protesters who are in prison right yes. now um, and who very much view Ukraine as their brothers and sisters and, and are very much opposed to this action. So we're, we're in solidarity with them. We don't want to get to a place where we're like, Russians are bad. Right. Because it's, it's, it's not like that. Nothing's ever that simple, right? right? And then, you know, the yeah. fact that there's been several reports, I think this is legitimate now, I think we can say this is true, that... Russian troops have been captured by the Ukrainians are telling the, the Ukrainians, we were told this was just going to be an exercise. We weren't told we were actually going to war. And so some of them are not terribly comfortable with the idea of fighting the Ukrainians. They were told this was all going to be a bluff and the Ukrainians are going to give us what we want. And, you know, the, their perspective was kind of what a lot of us in the West expected. They're going to grab those breakaway provinces that they're going to integrate that into Russia, like Crimea, and then that's it. And so a lot of these Russian soldiers are kind of surprised now they're actually having to fight and kill Ukrainians because that's not what they were told, and, and a lot of them are not even interested in that. Yeah. And, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Jason, you were going to... No, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I was reading this morning an interview with the with the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church here in the U.S., the Metropolitan, um, you know, he talks about during World War I, and, and I bring this up because I want to make a suggestion to everybody 
to maybe pray to to this great saint, one of my favorite saints, Saint Therese of Lisieux. But he he brought up that during World War One, by the Russian Catholics, she was kind of a, a, a special patron saint to them. Uh, during that time, she was looked as as you know as uh, protecting them and uh, particularly of soldiers. And you know he he mentioned that he went and and prayed uh, for her intercession in the conversion of Vladimir Putin um, in this matter. And I just thought, you know, what what a powerful saint to pray for, for that conversion. You're here. You're here. Absolutely. Um, so we've, we've been at it for about an hour and seven. I wanted to keep this kind of short because I know uh, both uh, my co-host, uh, Jason, and our guest, Dr. Bielikowski, have some, some other things to do. Dr. Bielikowski, I cannot tell you how grateful we are that you took a couple hours out of your morning to come and uh, fill in some blanks for us and um, uh, make sense of this. I, I would urge all our listeners to pray for peace, to uh, keep Our Lady close to your hearts and stay close to her Immaculate Heart um, because Christ is the Prince of Peace. And uh, I, I really do believe that uh, we're, not, we're not dealing with these people are not total strangers. They're Christians. They, they, so we all, in that sense, speak that same language, at least. Right. Um, and so just, just pray for peace and uh, keep, keep close to Our Lady. I think that's yeah, the and, and And I want to say thank you to Dr. Bilikowski. Always fascinating talking to you and hearing your, you know, your take on things. Thank you very much. Thanks for having and me, guys. We've all... Yeah, we're going to have a couple we're going to have some shows on ecumenical councils coming up and hopefully we can get you to return and uh, help us out with some of the background and history of the ecumenical councils. So, okay. Uh, that ought to be a lot of fun. Um be- before we go, I'd like to if I, if we could real quick say three Hail Marys for peace in the Ukraine um, and uh, I'll just go ahead and that'll close us out. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis, peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. We'll, uh, we're going to have to take ne- a week off next week because I'm going to be out of town. But until then, we'll meet again. God bless all of our listeners. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and pray for peace. God bless everyone. Amen.